Now, this temptation story is very interesting because um, it, tells us, it tells us something about who Jesus is, who he desires to be among us, how he desires to associate with us. And so when the writers of the New Testament uh, in various places say different things about this, um, but the most famous being uh, the writer of Hebrews saying in chapter 4, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been, what's the word there? Tested as we are, yet without sin. So the writer there is saying Jesus as well has gone through the same sort of things that we go through that test our faith, our resolve, our relationships, our lives. Jesus here is unlike celebrities when we jokingly say they're just like us. Right? You know how we do that? They're just like us. Maybe you don't do that. And as we enter this story, uh, we, the story that Brian just read for us, we notice something at the very beginning that seems off, that seems weird. The accent is hard to understand. And it's simply this, that we have this paradox of this ultimate intimacy with God, which I'm going to break down in a second, but also the presence of trouble and suffering and testing. Ultimate intimacy with God, but yet not without hardship and difficulty. The story begins with Luke saying that Jesus was, quote, full of the Holy Spirit, filled with this animating presence of God in his life. He is full of God's presence. Now, we could just say you have the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit is in you, but the wording here is that there's a real sense of ultimate It's an ultimate filling, just filled with, full of the Holy Spirit, this presence of God, and yet given to hardship and suffering and trouble. It's more identification with humanity. There's a lot of, quote, withness in these opening words of the story. Now, the images in the story are also worth us taking a look at. This image of the wilderness. Luke says that Jesus goes into the wilderness. He is there also for a period of how many days? 40 days. When you start talking about wilderness and the number 40, you're making connections to Israel's story of 40 years in the wilderness. Now, the wilderness in Luke's gospel is a place of testing It is a place of trial. It is a place of suffering. It is a place of trouble. No one in the first century ever said, let's settle down with a nice cabin in the wilderness. No one says that. Weird people live in the wilderness. John the Baptist lives in the wilderness. We don't want to move in next to that guy. Uh, The wilderness is not a place you go to for vacation. It's not a place that you go and, you know, it's just not a place you want to be. It is a symbol as well of trial and suffering and temptation and struggle and hardship, but not just in the Gospels, but all throughout the Bible. The wilderness is a place you avoid, and yet God seems to have many stories unfolding in the wilderness. Now, the 40 always in the Bible, the number 40, is almost always associated with, as well, struggle, temptation, 
change, transformation, an unsettling of life. 40, look it up. Just look it up. It's a nice, easy word study on your search engine. It's not hard to see that this number keeps reappearing when things are difficult, when things aren't going well. And so Luke uses these two images that Jesus goes into the wilderness for a period of 40 days. He is fasting, and that he is tempted is a given. That word is almost just, it's a given, of course. It's like when Jesus said, a man was on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he got mugged. It's a given. If you know the history of that part of the world at that time, everybody in the audience is like, oh, yeah, that happened to Joe. And why is he traveling alone? I'm just trying to make a point here. Badly, I know. But I'm trying to make a point that the fact that Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days and he's fasting, temptation is a given. Testing is a given. Struggle, hardship, and trouble, they are a given. And these images are important for us to see. Because again, before we even get into the story of Jesus, we are led to follow him into a place of trouble. Now you probably know this. If you don't, I'm going to tell you. But the Bible was written by people who were at different times and in different places uh, living as oppressed and exiled people. Or people living simply in the fear of the surrounding or occupying empire. In the first century alone, with all of the Roman-splaining that was happening at the time, great fear existed among those who were living underneath the arm of that empire. The Bible was not written by people living in peace. These writings were not produced in a safe or by a safe ensconced people, but by a people intimately familiar with hardship and trouble. We have to remember that. History is often written by those who win, but the Bible was written by those who lost. That's very, it's why it's hard for us to understand it sometimes. We read it from our cultural perspective and privilege, and a lot of it doesn't make sense. A lot of it's troubling but it comes to us from a people under the gun. And how we ever arrived at a place where we see life with Jesus equaling a life without trouble, I'll never know, but it doesn't come from the pages of the Bible. Amen? Now, if you've been a Christian a long time, you know that's true. I can tell by the way you walk, how you enter the room. It's been a hard week. New Christians, kind of annoying. Amen? You know? Their Instagram changes instantly. It's like, please stop. (laughs) You know? Because what we know is the longer that we are with God, the more we recognize how broken not just we are, but how broken the world is. And we know that life is hard. And we learn that as we get older. Uh, This is a fresh illustration, as in yesterday uh, or Friday night. But uh, my son left town to run a half marathon, which he won, by the way, yeah, uh, at Barry College, and uh, ran the whole thing on that campus because if you've ever been there, we get it. It's, a big, it's like Texas. We get it. It's big. Um, but anyway, we kept asking, like, do you want us, we would love to go with you and see you run. 
and he just kept like, ah, but he really wanted to do this one on his own. And so he booked a hotel on his own, and he sent me a photo of the, not yet, don't put the photo up yet, but he sent me a screenshot of the, um, he sent me a screenshot of the booking receipt and said, is this right? And, I, and my response back was like, $80? That's going to be a nice place. <laughs> Anybody with me? So we let that go, and then on Friday night, I get this photo from him. Now you can bring it up. This is the outlet that's missing a switch. Uh, I won't show you the photo of the toilet that he sent. And his, his mom was like, what does the bed look like? Is there a bed? Is there anybody in the bed? Uh, and so we just kept, you know, I, my response back was like, nice place. You know, it's a nice place. Um, just things you have to learn, right? It's a very low-grade illustration of like, you know, as we grow, we go through life and we learn these things. This is not a picture of suffering by any stretch, um, but I sensed that the room was, would get heavy at this point. So I lifted you out with a nice outlet photo from Alden. But growing and moving on doesn't make life easier, does it? We often think when we are young, if I can just get out of high school, if I can just get through college, if I can just get that job, if I can just get whatever the next thing is. I used to see it when I was on Facebook. Is that still around? Um, people would like count down to vacation. And I just remember always asking myself, yeah, but then what? You complain all the time on here. Is that really going to help? I've been on Facebook six years. You've been complaining the whole time. And now you're counting down to the beach. Like, is that really going to help you? We know that it doesn't always help. And that life, as we grow and get older, doesn't necessarily get easier. In a lot of ways, it gets more difficult. And it's good for us to know that before we enter this story of Jesus. Especially these final scenes around the temptation. It's good for us to see this opening setting of trouble and hardship that Jesus enters that just as we also enter that in our own life. Now, the temptations that Jesus undergoes in this story are quite basic. There's a temptation of the body. He's hungry. He hasn't eaten. There's a, tempt there's a temptation there, a physical temptation. There's a temptation towards power and influence. The temptation offered him is, can really grow your platform quite quickly if you just compromise. Like there's this whole temptation of power that's happening around Jesus and to Jesus. But there's also a temptation of Jesus's faith and trust in God, but it's actually raised as a kind of suspicion. It's raised as like, do you really trust God? These are base temptations for all of us, the physical, the social, the spiritual, right? Those don't change, by the way. They always stick around. And what's in the background of this story are two larger stories in the history of Israel. There's the Garden of Eden story. These are the same temptations. And then there is the wilderness story of Israel in the wilderness following the Exodus. In fact, the quotations that Jesus quotes 
back to the tempter are all from the Exodus story, the wilderness experience that the people of Israel went through. These are all base temptations that we all deal with, temptations of the body, of power, and of faith. Sin is often, if you read these closely, when I talk about sin, I talk about how sin is often truth but with small print. The temptation to sin is almost never a temptation to fall, but a temptation to rise, to gain more, to be more, to expand. Think about the temptation scene in the, in the garden story where the serpent talks to the woman and says, did God really say you would die if you eat this fruit? He's raising suspicion. And underneath that, what you're really seeing is, I feel like God might be holding out on you. Maybe you should investigate that. And then the serpent says to the woman, really what happens here is if you eat this, you become wiser. You become like God. You know things that you didn't know before. You know what's interesting about that story? If you read the very end of it, the serpent actually told the truth. Nobody died, and they got wiser. But it's in the small print of disobedience that we learn the real impacts of sin. It's never a call to fall. It's a call to rise. That's just information for you and for me today. When we are confronted with temptations, they are almost never temptations to destroy your life, but to improve it. And these are base for all of us. And also when we talk about sin, what we're talking about is a disruption in the peace that God is trying to bring to our lives and to the world. Emory professor Fred Craddock says it this way, in whatever images, scripture agrees with experience that there is in us and among us strong opposition to love, health, wholeness, and peace. Now, as you know, temptation, it never goes away. If it has gone away for, for, for you, from you, we'd love to talk to you. But it doesn't go away. We are, and the reason for that is because we are always in this world, right? This is the world we live in. And in this world, there will always be these base temptations, It doesn't go away, and sometimes it can get the best of us in our relationships, in our work life, in our personal life. Sometimes it can get the best of us. For some, and maybe even for some in this room, there are vices and addictions and behaviors that for you have been impossible to beat. These things will always be hounding us. And for all of us, there are these subterranean conditions of our lives that keep coming to the surface no matter how hard we try to keep them hidden. And then we learn in those moments that, oh, I still do have the capacity to get angry, to hate, to hope for the worst for you. That's in me. It's in you. It's we, we learn from time to time that we, we still have the capacity to do wrong, 
to others, to ourselves. It's in us. Even if we work hard to cover it in certain ways, it's still there. And that is because we are always in this world. Now, the simple approach to this story of Jesus would be to read it as a model and a manual for fighting temptation. Oh, learn scripture. When you're tempted, quote it and hold on. And that's a good way to read it. Does it work? Not every time. Not every time. And it's also important for us to remember that when this story is given to us, it's not given to us as a model or a manual. I think what Luke really wants us to see is that whatever the vices and the temptations or the deliberate sins uh, that there are in our lives and in the world, these base temptations, but everything else in between, that Jesus, and I want you to hear this most clearly today, what Luke wants us to see is that Jesus has overcome those for us on our behalf, where we continue and will continue to fail, Jesus has won. Amen? And so what Luke is saying to us here is, Jesus is both replaying Israel's history and succeeding where Israel had failed, but also giving us a picture of what Christ has done for all of us. That we will continue to struggle with these things until the day we die, but we can do so knowing that Christ has overcome them for us. When I was in college, one of the most life-changing books that I ever read was The Ragamuffin Gospel by Brennan Manning. And if you don't know who Brennan Manning is, uh, he has passed away, but Brennan Manning was this disgraced priest who struggled with alcohol till the day he died. And when he was sober enough, he would write books about grace. And the ragamuffin gospel needs to be on your shelf. There's so, many, there's so much uh, life in it for all of us. And um, if you're old enough to remember, Rich Mullins named his band the Ragamuffins after this book. This description of a people who know their need for the grace and mercy of God. And for those of us who will live our entire, entire lives unable to overcome all things. And we do so because we know that Christ has overcome those for us. A couple of quotations from the Ragamuffin Gospel for you. He writes, The kingdom is not an exclusive, well-trimmed suburb with snobbish rules about who can live there. No. It is for a larger, homelier, less self-conscious cast of people who understand they are sinners because they have experienced the yaw and the pitch of moral struggle. He goes on to say that the gospel declares that um, no matter how dutiful or prayerful we are, We can't save ourselves. What Jesus did was sufficient. Amen? And so today we begin the Sundays in Lent. And Lent is a season of fasting. And what I suggest to you and to me is that maybe the thing that you fast from is the idea of winning. Because Lent is a season to lose. Lent is a season for us to 
lose the idea of self-justification, of self-righteousness, of raising ourselves to a point where we are better. Nadia Bowles-Weber said recently that the drug of choice in our day is to think that we are better than others, that we are more evolved than others, that we are superior to others. But Lent is a season to lose that. Lent is a season to lose altogether. Lent is a season to remember that it is by God's grace and mercy, not by my own strength, that I am a child of God. In the timbers of Fenerio, the wolves are running round. The winter was so hard and cold, froze ten feet neath the ground. Don't murder me. Said my prayers and went to bed. That's the last they saw of me.